episode 46 with writer and media entrepreneur Stephen Satterfield. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. What does it mean to be a people completely and systematically separated from the origins of your primary source of energy? In what ways has the industrialization of food been leveraged to perpetuate systems of oppression? Today's episode is with writer, media entrepreneur, and host of the hit show High on the Hog, Stephen Satterfield. Today, we pull out our shovels of inquiry and dig deep to uncover what's just beneath the surface of our food systems. From his early days in America's South, Atlanta to be exact, Stephen Satterfield was always questioning the world around him. Headstrong and inquisitive, the everyday routines and rituals of Southern life required interrogation, but there was one portal in particular able to capture his young imagination. Television cooking shows. Culinary ringmasters like Emeril Lagasse and Mario Batali performed culinary sleights of hand beamed through televisions across the country, and Stephen was hooked. Determined to get as far away from Atlanta as possible, he took off for culinary school to the furthest place he could get to without a passport, Portland, Oregon. But upon arrival, he saw quite quickly that the canon of fine and not-so-fine dining was shaped around a very small part of the globe, namely Italy and France. Even the shows of his youth were quite myopic in their culinary scope. Disenchanted, he dropped out and headed back south, and began work as a sommelier, importing wines from South Africa, where he later began a nonprofit assisting what were essentially South African sharecroppers, stripped of their land rights in a post-apartheid state. It was this work that led him to telling stories about land and the people attached to it, stories about food and from whence it came, stories about oppression through the lens of cuisine. In 2016, he co-founded Whetstone Magazine, later expanding it to Whetstone Media two years later. And in 2021, he served as host of the aforementioned Netflix series, High on the Hog, How African-American Cuisine Transformed America. And the rest, as they say, is history. We love hearing from you. Head over to Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing over here. And we'd also love to know more about you. Head to www.blackimagination.com backslash survey and answer just a few questions about yourself. It's super short and will help us understand what's important to you, our beloved community. You can also find the link at the top of our Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And now the Oracle of Origins, and the Griot of Grub, Stephen Satterfield. I'm, pour, I'm pouring um, a cup of <gasps> La Colombe coffee that upset me when I bought it. I was pissed when I looked at the label and I was just like, I mean, guys. Why? On. What happened? Oh, you know, I well, I, I um, at the time I was teaching my course at Parsons, decolonizing the gaze, fashion, race, and the aesthetics of visual design, and um, you know, we were speaking about you know um, colonialism and you know the colonial exhi- exhibitions that they had in Europe, um, really to justify the the enterprise of slavery to regular people, right? So, you know, British East India Company, these corporations, um, creating these exhibitions, these spectacles, where they would bring in these quote-unquote raw materials um, to show or to um, 
to justify this act of colonialism to you know its citizens um and so it was always this 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 um story i mean you speak a lot about this this story about like this primitive right this primitive unrefined culture and we are going to refine it we are going to make it um something that is you know palpable and cultured and just you know, going to Whole Foods and buying a box of coffee that's labeled Afrique um, because of its origins and then, you know, looking to see who owns this company, right? Who owns this company? Who's telling this story? Who's controlling this narrative? Um, knowing that wherever these people are from, which is, I, I can't remember, but it's definitely not in a country uh, coffee growing region that you don't even grow coffee here so what's the real story here and the ways in which um and this is something you speak about a lot as well right these systems these food systems really obfuscate um the origins of of our food stuff right and then also right who is controlling them who's actually profiting off of them despite you know the beautiful typography and the rich storytelling um, that they put on the back of the box. And so actually that's a really good place to hop in, I would say. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. I, I think so. <laughs> uh, so uh, Mr. Uh, Stephen Satterfield, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I am so honored to have you here and excited to hop into this, I think, exceedingly rich conversation. Thank you for having me and for thinking of me. Of course, of course. Uh, so to start, um, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? Oh, um, how about uh, my sister, Ashley? Um, Actually, both of my sisters, Ashley and Donna. I'm glad you included Donna. I think she would have been, she would have felt a, a kind of way. <laughs> well, yeah, at first you said one mm. or who. Um, but then I was like, I have two because I have two sisters. So there you go. Donna and Ashley, this one is for you. Um so in your letter from the editor in like your most recent copy of Whetstone Magazine, summer 2021, you wrote, I've screamed with all my might, all my life to be heard. Now it feels like people may actually be listening. What do you want people to hear? And are they listening? Well, what I want people to hear, um, it's really what I want them to consider uh, is the radical power and potential of food. Uh, mostly we are passive participants in what is the most essential part of our lives? What is the only part of the human experience that we all have to share? And I think the impact of people being divorced from this essential relationship has dev devastating consequences on our bodies, our health, our community, our culture, our identity, and ecologically. So those connections around culture, environment, humanity, etc. Food is at the intersection of them all. And for some reason, reasons I think I know, um, we don't have that reverence and relationship to food. And so that's what I'm trying to impress upon people. And do I think it's being heard? Certainly more than ever. Um, 
because of the power of amplification. That's what media is. That's what media at scale is, corporate media. So um, I am benefiting from that to some degree. And um, so are my ideas. Hmm. You, you know, this idea um, of, of this, this kind of palpable, palpable yet unquestioned um, consumption you know, a food I find, you know, extremely interesting, but, you know, for yourself, like you, you got started quite early in, um, you know, in the food industry, you know, really kind of like your late teens and early twenties, like, you know, and becoming a sommelier, what was that journey like, right? Like what was that intention, right? In entering the food space. And when was that realization that this, this space that you were in had a larger story to tell? Yeah, I was just very impacted by, um, by media really, you know, by, by television, um, watching the food network, um, watching cooking on television in a way that was kind of theatrical, but, you know, had a lot of um, information as well, like teaching you how to cook. You know, um, I'm thinking about shows on the Food Network, like Emeril Lagasse and, uh, you know, people like Mario Batali before he got canceled, long before. Um, and then I was even watching public television and watching people like Wolfgang Puck, um, Ian Ken Cook, Jacques Pepin, Julia Child. Um, I was just interested in food at, at, at a young age in high school. And um, I started to try to emulate, you know, a lot of the cooking that I saw on television. And it is a big part of the reason why um, I'm in food media now, you know, because um, it made a huge impact on me as a young person. Um, but also, as you maybe, you know, picked up on in, in all those names, these are white people doing European cooking, almost all French or derivative. And um, of course, you know, France is a great country, but just one country of, of hundreds. And, um, you know, the, the idea that um, all great um, things from a culinary standpoint descend from France is obviously not just wrong, but problematic. Um, and so, uh, and I also had, you know, in my own home life. Um, my father was, is a very skilled cook too. And I have memories of like um, my mom's mom, my maternal grandma and my dad cooking together um, like really fantastic meals. So I also come from a home where food was at the center. We entertain our family um, on all holidays, all occasions were the gathering place. And so I had a nice relationship with food, like both in my house and then, you know, just as a matter of my own curiosity as a young person, like taking it all in um, so much so that I tried out college briefly for a few months. And then I made a choice, like I really was sure that I, that food could hold my attention for the rest of my life. And so um, I decided to go to culinary school as a teenager and that was a great decision for me. And in that process, when did you realize that there was a, a richer history, right? That there was something more 
that needed to be said around this food stuff? Pretty early on, actually. Um, in my early 20s, maybe like by my 21st birthday, I was starting to look sideways at the whole project. Um, basically, you know, I, I graduated from culinary school. I was, in, I was in Oregon, I was in Portland, Oregon, and I'm, I'm from Atlanta. I originally um, decided to go to Oregon um, simply just because I wanted to move far away from home. I was that type of teenager. Um, so I had never been to the West Coast. I had an appetite for adventure and curiosity, like I said. So I was like, let me just pull up in Eugene, Oregon. And I tried that out for, um, you know, a, a few months and I actually really loved it. Um, proximity to nature. I made a lot of friends there um, my freshman year, but once they hit me with the out-of-state tuition, you know, it was just like, it was clear that I wasn't going to be graduating from college, you know, because I just didn't, I didn't love it like that. Um, and I didn't really have a direction. And so I couldn't see um, the crippling debt, you know. And so um, I, I did take on debt to go to culinary school, but I at least felt like, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I could, I could find my way. Um, but by the time I was like, I don't know, 22 years old, um, it was clear to me that I just wasn't around people who, who look like me, which is one thing, cause I get it, I'm in Oregon, but the whole industry that I really loved, you know, that I committed myself to like going through this professional education learning about wine, becoming a sommelier at a very young age before my 21st birthday. Um, I was just annoyed at, at how overwhelmingly white everything was. And so um, I decided to move back to Atlanta and um, I hooked up with this, a black woman who um, was importing wines from South Africa and um, I read, this is how long ago it was, I read an article about her in Time Magazine, like the print magazine, and I grew up. Um, and basically, you know, I started working with her portfolio of, of Black women making wine in South Africa, um, as well as kind of adding to our own portfolio of wineries and wine workers um, that we were kind of working in support of. So I started a nonprofit organization, um, really just advocating for wine as a catalyst for economic development in post-apartheid South Africa. The South African wine industry had a very, uh, has a very uh, tumultuous and devastating history of colonization, was founded upon, um, founded by Dutch colonists and um, enslaved and indentured servitude, which continues in horrific ways, even today, um, where, you know, you'll have the same families, Black and, and Indigenous African families, um, who have been on the same land for 20 generations without ownership, you know, and so um, after the, the end of uh, apartheid in South Africa, there were a number of uh, projects from the government there to, um, you know, basically under the moniker of Black economic empowerment. And the wine industry was, was part of that. And so I started working with some wineries there, basically helping them export their wines to the U.S. and then doing um, marketing really, or just kind of storytelling on their behalf about their plight. And um, that's really sort of how I, I found my, my voice in 
um, not really willing to give in, like when in, in white spaces or, or things that are traditionally um, conventionally considered white, um, but instead just like mobilizing around my people and um, just, yeah, like my, my politics, you know, politics of the land and, and human beings, um, which is really central to everything, but really hard to talk about, you know, when you're just like drinking wine at a restaurant or something like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and this is also where like your, your interest in, I mean, you mentioned storytelling, but this is kind of where the journalistic arm began oh. as well, correct? Yeah. Yeah, it was a total mistake. I mean, but, um, you know, as you you heard, even in me kind of unfurling all that now, like it's a, it, there's a lot of nuance in the story, you know what I mean? And um, we were trying to get, this was a 501c3 nonprofit, meaning we were all, um, you know, mostly donor-based. Um, so we're trying to get donors to care about you know, folks, Black folks in South Africa in the wine business, something that they associate as this luxury item, they have no context of Black people in wine at all, right, because of how Eurocentric the whole thing is. They'll be like, they make wine in Africa? Like, all. so we were really dealing with, um, you know, a communication and a knowledge um, gap and so, you know, we, we got into like making videos and um, sending out newsletters early days. We were, we were doing social campaigns in like 2008 on Facebook, you know, trying to um, raise awareness about uh, what was happening in the South African wine industry. So yeah, that was really um, just by accident, like the beginning of me doing these kind of land-based stories, agrarian stories that are rooted in, in justice and storytelling and equity. Um, no, thank you. For, thank you for double tapping on that. Um, you know, one thing that I, you know, because you mentioned France earlier and we've had um, other uh, food artists, I'll just say food, food artisans um, on the podcast, like, you know, Chef Omar Tate in Philly and speaking about just, Shout out to What's Omar. up? Omar's my guy. I love you, Omar. Ah, but you know, really speaking about you know the ways in which you know the codification of of of, of a um, oh my god, <laughs> codification of of a, of a culture um, or of an industry, right, allows for this kind of. Um, standard to be set, right? So the ways because of French codification of the food industry and food stuff kind of creates this standard, right? Um, but you all, but there's something that also goes through uh, your media and your writing, which is this notion of the terroir, right? Or um, the let me actually read this: the specific environmental conditions in which a thing or a crop originates or grows from that grows from that gives a specific characteristic to the thing that's growing. Um, and I think this is, I love this term and I love this concept because it applies to food, right? In so many ways, but I think it's a much bigger conversation, right? You know, about, you know, the individual, about ourselves and what is the soil that we're planted in? What is the culture that we're couched in? And how does that define our flavors, um, our tastes, um, the ways in which we grow? But kind of going back to food, why are the messy and dirty origins of food important to tell? Um, yeah, so I, I share um, that perspective on terroir, you know, it's one of the first things that you learn about um, literally day one, chapter one, um, when you learn to become a sommelier. So it is a, a really central concept in, in my life. And, um, you know, I've made this connection many times as well. Um, so 
a way that we can bring forth the framework of terroir in a, that is more accessible, um, we talk about it from the perspective of origins. And when we talk about origins, we're looking at it as a reclamation project, knowing that the stories that we have adopted that have been taught and told and absorbed are stories that are not written with our collective histories. These are stories that are written by the dominant ruling class in society. And we see that in the like farcical textbooks, right? And all of our, our public schooling, which, you know, they continue to attack even to this second. Um, we see that even in just polite conversations um, in which our likeness is just simply omitted, right? It's just not like these ingredients, these dishes, these techniques, they just, poof, they just arrive. Right. And so it's it's in that invisible space. It's in that space of omission where our focus on origin allows for a historical and a narrative correction. It says actually not only were we there, but we got a popping. And these are the specific ways that we did that, right? And we are reclaiming our history and our agency in naming the origins and rightly reinserting ourselves where we were previously omitted from the story. And as a result of that work and that process, the transformation is such that those who were previously omitted, who didn't see themselves, you know, folks who didn't know uh, oysters were for Black people, right? That, or that we invented macaroni and cheese. There is pride now. And it's not just about the dish. It's about the historical correction. And now we're thinking, what other stories were we not told? Right. And that is that is a real paradigm shift around identity. Because now you're looking at everyone and everything differently. And every time you hear a story or read a story or absorb a story, and there's no mention of any black people, you're gonna be like, I want the real story. And so we need to find the origins. And so we talk about our work of origin foraging, moving backwards to the point of origin as a means of reclamation. Ah, thank you for um, you know expounding upon that. Like as you as you were speaking, um, you know it's 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 why I think your your work and the way that you move you know, is so powerful to me because I'm also doing the same, right, with images. Um, what are the stories? What are the codes? What are the things that are hidden in plain sight, right, in image making that then define and shift and change and cultivate what we perceive to be an identity, which was really based on a bunch of stories, right? Like, um, but really getting down to the nitty gritty. Um, and speaking of like point of origin, your podcast is amazing. I was listening to, um, what was the last one I listened to about the ethics of meat? I believe it was called or titled. Yeah right, the ethics of meat or meat eating. And, you know, the story around cow slaughter in India just took me out. Like, just took me out, right? Because, again, we can only uh, understand the world via the channels, right, 
of the stories that are told, right? So it's not even just like the creation of the story, but the channels through which we receive it. And, you know, we have, you know, a, a, a very flattened notion of India, right? Like, you know, it's it's yoga and, you know, cows walking in the streets. And, you know, underneath that, underneath that is this entire industry of, well, not only milk production, right? Um, that's one of the largest providers of milk in the world, but also of cow slaughter. And and that even this notion, I mean, if you're listening, please go to Point of Origin and double tap on that episode. And let me let me tell you now, it will just be a binge listen all the way through. Um, but. Um, sorry, I totally, I totally lost my train of thought. Oh, but yeah, but there's this there, but, but in this are, are embedded hierarchies of power, right? That we, that never make it to American shores. And so in, in this investigation, like in this work that you've been doing, like what other stories, like, um, what lessons have you learned about the ways in which power just works, Right. The, the, the relationship between the state and the citizen, you know, the oligarchy and the proletariat. Um, what lessons have you learned uh, in the ways in which that operates in other places in the world? Because I think, you know, here in the U.S., it manifests as this idea, right, these concepts, um, these symbols of white and black. But this is a system that is perpetuated around the world. Yeah, Um it's a great observation. And um, I think once again, you kind of absorb this perspective, it's hard to unsee it. You know, it's really hard to um, not see the ways in which power has a hand in what we eat, how we think about what we eat, um, and I'll give you a few examples. Um, there's many. I mean, first of all, the if we were to think about like the so-called American diet, right, in the modern context, what we're really thinking about are foods that are um, high in fat, sugar, hyper-processed from a package or a wrapper, right? So the last hundred years in the U.S. and around the world, but especially in the U.S., you see an industrialization of food, right? A commodification of food that separates um either far, folks who are themselves farming or living alongside and in community with the people who are providing most of their daily bread, right? Into uh, an institution that creates more and more and more distance between the consumer and the producer, right? And, and, and also creating that separation subsidizing these industries at every single point from the fertilizers that go into the ground and destroy the soil to um, you know food scientists to, to manufacturers and processors finding ways to make corn syrup uh, more and more uh, sweet and less and less expensive right this manipulation of food for profit, is actually the way that we eat now, right? We don't think about it in those terms, but like that exploitation for profit, like that itself is a, is a power dynamic. The food that poor people eat, the food that they can afford that has been manipulated and exploited to, to death, literally, right? Those subsidies, we pay for those as, as citizens, right? And so like, that's just, that's, that's just like where to, that's a warm up conversation, right? And then, and then you could even do the same thing where you look at, um, well, how, like how did sugar, which has devastated the, the Caribbean um, islands, like 
uh, you know, we know about the history and, and Barbados and Haiti, like where, where did the demand side on the sugar came from? Well, it comes from imperial colonies, right? It was at first a thing for wealthy people who could afford it. And because of the overwhelming lust, the insatiable lust for more and more and more, and for people who don't have it to try to get like the people who have it, right? Oh, we wanna get sugar too, creates a demand side. Well, England is a place, yes, that's where the crown is. This is the imperial power, but they don't have the ability on their own shores to meet that demand, right? In a way that can be profitable. So they need to go find free labor from enslaved Africans, right? To now supply the demand side for a nation who can afford it because of this exploitation, this racialized exploitation. And to go back to your earlier point, how we started off about the coffee, when you look at the countries who drink the most coffee, you will see an inverse relationship to the countries who actually produce the coffee, except for maybe Brazil. But otherwise, who drinks coffee? All the Nordic countries, the US, all of Europe, none of them are growing. Coffee comes from Africa. And so like, once you really start to understand whether from a historical context, how did we get here? What does our food teach us to like taking something out of the wrapper? Why are we eating like this today? It's all a study in power and exploitation and profit. And so understanding like and deepening this relationship to food, like, like I said, this is what my work is now about, once we can start to, to question and interrogate these systems, now we can start to roadmap a way of, of a more um, just and liberated and equitable and healthy food system that can start to undermine the industrialization that, that has and continues to cause so much harm. It's a long journey, it's, it's, but it starts off with getting people to actually think critically about this stuff, which is not easy because of the, the century of indoctrination, you know, and neoliberalization all over the world. And again, like the, the commodification, like it's hard because now we're talking about a system where access is really, really hard. Like how can we actually we don't even, we know like about food apartheid, how there's no healthy food in the neighborhoods and the communities who, who most suffer from negative health outcomes, right? From uh, fast food and from soda, but they don't have whole foods or not even whole foods, but there's no healthy food in the community because we now have an access problem because we've commodified what it should be a, a equal right for all humans, which is access to healthy food. And so asking like, how do we, we build it? We're now, we gotta go against not only like Kellogg's and General Mills and Kraft and all that, it's also like Disney and Coca-Cola. It's also your nostalgia, it's your childhood, it's McDonald's Happy Meals, it's the toys, like, that's what we're dealing with. And so our, our work is, is, you know, nascent, right? And, and we need, before we can really try to shift culture, we need people to think about food in a completely different way. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, as you were speaking, I mean, there's a couple of things. One, just going all the way back to this idea of right sugar um and the ways in which um you know the role that it played in slavery particularly in the caribbean islands um to think about this free labor being performed for consumption um in in europe and then you know 150 200 300 years later those who suffer 
the most from over sugar consumption, right? Like diabetes are also black and brown individuals, right? Like it's a death on the front end and a death on the back end. Um, it's kind of how I thought, uh, you know, coming out, well, coming out of being in the pandemic, um, you know, a lot of the stories around brown and black individuals who did not want to get vaccinated was not trusting the government, right, because of a history of, of experimentation or really the actual with, um, withholding of treatment, particularly the um, Tuskegee experiments. And so there's death on the front end, but then we also disproportionately suffer, you know, a greater amount of deaths on the back end, right, because of because of it, you know, as a result. Um, but then you also mentioned this notion of a food apartheid. Um, why is it important that we, that we really name it a food apartheid, right? And this is in opposition to this other concept that was kind of birthed in, in academia, a food desert. Yeah. Um, shout out to Karen Washington. Um, in the Bronx. Yeah, who coined the the term? Um, so yeah, if we were when we talk about um, a desert, you know, deserts are naturally occurring, and um, that's not what's happening when we have the access problems that we do in communities of color, low income communities. Um, we that separation between these communities and access to food um, is not a mistake. So in other words, um, healthy food is treated like uh, a privilege for people who have that privilege, right? And so in the way that apartheid is a system that separates based on privilege, like racialized privilege, right? That is human intervention. That is not a desert. That is not naturally occurring. So the humans are removing their own accountability in this system of access. Mm. I love that. I mean, I think it really speaks to the importance of language and the ways in which language, uh, you know, Noam Chomsky speaks about language is rarely actually used to communicate, but usually meant to hide, usually meant to hide behind, to obfuscate. Um, and, and thinking about, you know, even, you know, kind of circ circling back to like Whetstone Media and um, and your podcast, um, you created your own path, right, in media and journalism outside of like traditional um, funding streams and like capitalism. And recently, you know, acquired um, a significant amount of funding, I think like $1.3 million. So congratulations um, for that. But, you know, what conditions have to be true for a black or brown person to literally create their way outside of the machine of capitalism while also playing and living in that game? Because I know that road hasn't been straightforward or easy. Well, from your own admission. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I have to laugh. Um, there's no, there's no way out. We're not, no one's escaping this. There's no clean money. There's no way out. All we're doing is the best we can. And, you know, the work has always been the same. The work, as I've just described it to y'all, from my perspective, is always going to be the same. And we have reached a lot of people who are in the congregation, you know, but we need a larger congregation. We need a bigger church. 
and that's that's what it's about and like how how to get to be one of the lucky magical chosen negroes you know the one percenters who gets the opportunity i don't know it takes so much privilege i mean my own personal path um because i didn't go to college you know i didn't have like the right professional networks to really support me in, in what I was trying to do. Um, but I was making heart-centered work about what I really believed in, you know? And a lot of that was really about naming the presence of white supremacy and the harm of, white, of whiteness in, in all the spaces that it was in my life and how it was in all of our lives. And, and especially in spaces that I was moving in that were especially white, you know, I got energy from telling these white people, like, you need to know your own history in this space, you know? And so, like, it was very, it's very improbable that I would have ended up here, you know? I don't know that that's the best advice per se, um, unless you really feel called to that. And so, ultimately, the best way for for us to get on is to make the work that we believe in you know our culture has is will always be exploited so if you're doing cultural work um that's heart-centered you probably already or will soon have some people in positions of power looking at you especially for black people for the next thing because they're always going to look to us for the next thing because we always supply the next thing and so how do we capture the value of the next thing that we create i hope more effectively than we have in the past and that's all i'm trying to do presently you know but um we're happy that we've gotten the support we're happy for the opportunity i'm trying to make the best of it um but there's there's no heroes in this story. <laughs> um, you you mentioned wanting to be like the you know the I don't want the new food network. I don't know. I don't know if you want to say that. Um, but like what what is what is what is the North Star in well, building Whetstone Media? Yeah, I think we're just we're. I think we're really making work that we believe in right now and that we're really proud of. You know, we just launched this podcast company. We launched Whetstone Radio Collective in December. Um, we have shows from all over the world, uh, Climate Cuisine from Taiwan, uh, a show on Anishinaabek uh, and, and native food ways um, being uh, recorded in Michigan. We have a show from Oaxaca, Mexico, on Mescal, we have a show from Delhi, India, um, that is kind of about like reimagining and, and rethinking all of the colonial food histories entrenched in South Asian foodways. So like all the stuff that we're doing with podcasting, we continue to do our print magazine. Um, we're expanding once again into video after taking a little bit of time off because of COVID. Um, we love what we're making. We just want to continue to find more evangelists um, so we can keep making more work yeah i i mean it's it's such foundational and powerful work and i think um really really gets to the to the heart of the matter um and it's interesting that the avenue through which you're telling this is through food right but i think the the meta the meta conversation is really about consumption um, and, and, and also like design, um, and who, who is creating, who is designing, and then what are we consuming? And by not, you know, um, maybe interrogating it or questioning it or getting to the heart of the matter, then we can unconsciously then perpetuate it, right? That, that it, that it will become part of our put. What was what inputs have been designed will then become part of our output, right? Things that we we think we made a choice 
about. But you've mentioned a couple of times this couple of couple of uh, churchy couple churchy words in there, congregation, um, and uh, we need a larger church, and, um, you know, evangelical, right, evangelize. Eh, what, uh, what spiritual tradition did you grow up in back there in Atlanta? Well, both of my parents are Christians, but my personal tradition was resisting going to church. <laughs> as early and as vehemently as possible. So, yeah, I think I won out at like eventually 13, maybe, yeah, before right before high school, I think they tapped out. Um, I was born out of my mind in church. Um, I was an inquisitive child that had lots of questions about the messaging that I wasn't satisfied with the answers. And I just um, honestly just always had a peculiar sense of like, just not fitting in, in a way. Um, however, you know, the backdrop of that though, is like my, my father my, and my mom, you know, being very involved, especially my dad, including the food angle um, you know, some of my earliest and best memories um, are my, is my dad, you know, frying fish for the congregation after church. Um, you know what I mean? And like, they're just remembering lines of people like him just like serving them this, this like hot fish, you know? And so I, and I like that, you know, and I like what the church um, has uh, done for Black people at times and as, as far as our own liberation and agency and, and places of safety. Um, but, you know, we know that the, the institution is not always that. And um, so, yeah, that's just like all, that's not unique to us or our people or our religion. Um, but as far as my own experience with it, um, I grew up in the tradition, but not personally. <laughs> you know, and, and thinking about, uh, well, this idea of resistance, right, and, and, and questioning um, sounds like it came on at a very early age. Um, and so that, that seems like that's just been baked in from, you know, from the jump, but, you know, but I also understand, you know, coming from, you know, Atlanta, growing up in Atlanta in the nineties, you know, uh, being, a, a, a sommelier and working in wine in South Africa to really now being at the helm of this incredible, um, I think aesthetically beautiful, but then I think also, you know, just culturally rich, um, burgeoning, I'm just going to say burgeoning media empire. I'm just going to go for it. Um, who did you have to become, right, from from the young man in South Africa trying to tell stories about um, these winemakers in that region to now being at the helm of Whetstone Media, right? I know that's a process also of constant iteration, but who who did you have to become to to be where you are today? Um. Yeah, I'm gonna answer, and sorry, I just am noting the time. I'm gonna have to jump after this one if that's, uh, um, but I to answer your question, um, who did I have to become? I, um, I think I had to become crushed, actually. Um, there were many false starts along the way, you know, I, um, the, the person who I was dreaming and scheming Whetstone with, um, a very, very dear friend of mine, um, he died tragically in a car accident. 
um, the year before we were supposed to launch. And um, that was obviously really a, a difficult thing. Um, I decided that I would make one version of the magazine to honor him, just to say that I did it. And um, I had no money to do that. I tried to do a crowdfunding campaign and failed twice badly as well. Um, and so I, at a certain point, you know, just to get this first one out after not having money, after losing my friend, um, like I had to basically get to a point where um, there was no way that this wasn't about to happen. There was no way I had to, um, the doubt had been removed, not because I was unsure, um, but because there was just no way that I wasn't going to do this. And there is something that is really miraculous that a lot of people experience who make this transition um, from a, a place of doubt or uncertainty or even hopefulness into conviction, you know, and um, almost always when people make that transition into conviction, um, they almost always get there wherever that there is for them. And for me, it was just about um, spending three years almost getting one magazine to come out and enduring the many years of continuing to fight for it, even uh, without income or revenue and staying on friends' couches um, because, the, because of that conviction. And um, I think a lot of times when you hear stories from people that we feel like they made it in some way, the redundancy of this exact story is pretty shocking. Mm. Um, thank you for sharing that. And that is a really, I think, beautiful place um, to wrap this conversation. Before I ask the last question, uh, Stephen, I just want to take this moment to not only thank you for joining us today, but to also like acknowledge, acknowledge this work. I mean, as you just said, right, like this, it, it hasn't been easy. Like it's not easy, right? This is, this was not handed to you. Um, but you know, this constant life of like refusal has manifested in, in a, in a media, uh, empire, a, a level of storytelling that I have not witnessed in my life. Right. Like I watched Julia Childs too. Right. I, I watched the cooking shows on Saturday as well, not knowing what was hidden just beneath the surface of the very things that I was on one hand admiring. And on the second hand, like, consuming. And so this is, you know, the foundational work. And although we are kind of in, you know, this system, like we are doing the best that we can, but we have to start somewhere, right? We have to start, right, with the origins. And so thank you so much for that work. Um, our last question, what is the world that you imagine for the future? Um, the world that I imagine is um, will be the same as the world in the past, as long as it's inhabited with humans. The, the hierarchical needs of people, um, I think, will endure. I think for better and for worse, humans are going to keep acting like humans and things will keep getting better and keep getting worse. And if you had everything at your behest, what would be the world that you would imagine for the future? 
Oh, in my own imagination. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm um, interested in that one. <laughs> oh, um, just that. Um, just, just liberation. I mean, I, I think I would love to live in a world where people were truly free, where they felt um, that there was space for them in the world. They felt unencumbered not burdened by um, labor and, um, you know, negative stories around who they are um, and instead felt free um, and unencumbered to pursue their own curiosities and their own joy. Like that would be a very free world to live in. Love that, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. I appreciate you. Appreciate you so much. Thank y'all for thinking of me. I look forward to it. And um, yeah, thanks for the time. Thank you all so much for joining us today. This conversation with Stephen was one of the most filling and nutritious conversations I've had in a while. What about you? Share some of your favorite moments with us over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination and be sure to head over to www.blackimagination.com backslash survey to let us know a bit more about you. We appreciate you so much. If the adage you are what you eat is true, it's important to know what you're made of. Stay curious and keep dreaming.